Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? This is Lindsay Lerner, and you're listening to The Cost of the Status Quo. More people than ever are questioning why they do what they do and forging their own path. And on this show, I sit down with these entrepreneurs, trailblazers, creatives, and overall awesome beings to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the overall tips and tricks they're using so that the rest of us can do the same. This is The Cost of the Status Quo. Elevate your sound game with Filbert, the perfect upgrade for your recording or office space. Our producer, Andrew, has been pushing for a better recording environment. Say goodbye to basic egg crates and hello to stylish felt tiles that not only reduce 35% of ambient noise, but also show off your unique design sense. And the best part, these tiles are made from recycled bottles, making your recording space both stylish and eco-friendly. Get 10% off at feltright.com with code CSQ10. That's CSQ10. Let's give Andrew and you, our listeners, the top-notch sound that you deserve while making a positive impact on the planet. Share your creative Feltright designs with us and join the sustainable sound revolution. Hey, hey, welcome to The Cost of the Status Quo, where we challenge the norms and explore new ideas to drive positive change in the world. Today, we have a special guest, Madeline Shaw, who has dedicated her career to social entrepreneurship and creative leadership. With over 28 years of experience, she has founded or co-founded four diverse ventures, all with the common goal of making a positive impact on society, or what she calls the greater good, which is also the title of her 2021 book about social entrepreneurship. Madeline has been a part of numerous social impact conferences, communities, and educational programs, and has mentored and been been mentored by many entrepreneurs along the way. She believes that bringing unique ideas and life experiences to the forefront of innovation is crucial for a better future for all of us. Join us as we delve into Madeline's journey and insights on the importance of social entrepreneurship and creative leadership. Hey, Lindsay. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. It's really nice to meet you. I appreciate it. And I'm super excited to dive in. And I'd love to start with you sharing a little bit about your background and where you grew up and how you think your upbringing may have shaped your values and beliefs thus far. Okay. So I find myself on the unceded stolen lands of the Coast Salish people, mm-hmm. in particular, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil Tooth in what's colonially known as Vancouver, Canada. Mm-hmm. So that's my hometown. And okay. I think that tells you a little bit. I'm a white settler on Indigenous land, and I think that's a really important thing that anybody who's not Indigenous should recognize kind of first and foremost that they didn't just, their families didn't just sort of magically show up without trauma or cost to somebody else. They weren't first, no longer how how long their families have been here. And so that's very much my background, and I think it's, it's important to kind of get it out of the way, right out of the gate, because some of the things that we're going to talk about today may sound amazing. And like, I worked so hard for that to happen. And that, you know, I just received that thing. And it's like, no, you know what, I'm packing a pretty substantial chunk of social privilege. And so pretty much anything, most things that you can think of. And so, yeah, that's true. So that's part of my background. But that said, my parents were kind of a unique combination. My mom was a social worker. And when she was in her working career, and then after having multiple miscarriages and finally able to have my brother and myself, she moved on to doing voluntary board work in the healthcare field and okay. that type of thing. And in the meantime, my dad was in the legal profession. And so an interest in social justice is something I think that I come by very honestly, because truth telling and caring about the well-being and of others, just the, the whole notion of justice was huge in my family. So I still to this day, am like, so meticulous about telling the truth, even when it's awkward or whatever. And, and then of course, you know, being a social entrepreneur, you know, there's the social part and trying to build social impact into every single thing that I do. Exactly. Oh, um, yeah. I appreciate you diving right in the truth telling aspect of it being honest, even brutally honest. So I appreciate you diving in right there. And so you grew up on Vancouver And then how long did you stay there? When did you venture out? Yeah, I moved to Ontario and I'm not sure which traditional lands Kingston, Ontario is located Mm -hmm. on, but I went to university 
in Kingston at age 17. And so I've got to say, it's interesting now, I have a 17 year old daughter who's in grade 12. Looking back, you know, I I really wasn't prepared for that experience. Like I, I really... I just wasn't emotionally ready for it. And I was a lot younger than most of my peers and it right. just, and yet, you know, it was a very widely celebrated thing. It was a prestigious university and, sure. you know, I was, I was lucky in, in so many ways, but so I was there after graduation, I moved to France and worked there for a while. Where in France? In the South near Perpignan. And so I worked as a translator for a real estate firm and did that. And then just a whole bunch of random jobs. Like I, I traveled, I was one of these people who would make enough money to travel and then go traveling. And, um, I lived, that is why we get along. Yeah. (laughs) It was sort of an addiction for a while. And I, but I mean, what, I think it's a really great thing to do in your, you know, late teens and early twenties and just to see the world and get that, you know, your, your experience is not necessarily that of your fellow global citizens. And, so yeah, I lived in the Middle East for a while uh, and worked there and sure. I lived in the United States for a little while, but eventually came back to Vancouver mm-hmm. to really start my career. I just really felt the pull of family and it is, okay. in all honesty, it's a beautiful place. Definitely is. Where do you think that that innate, seemingly innate curiosity for the world and travel came from, especially growing up you know, on the island? Yeah. I mean, my parents took my brother and I to Europe for our first time when I was 15, I guess. And it really blew my mind. But I remember reading quite voraciously when I was younger than that. And so I remember my mom gave me this book called Tracks by an Australian woman called Robin Davidson. And she she went by herself from Alice Springs or Yuluru in Australia to the West Coast of Australia by herself with like four camels and a dog in the early 1980s. And I was just so captivated by that. And yeah, anyways, I just read some interesting, Freya Stark is another really amazing kind of early travel writer. Alexander David Neal was the first white woman to visit Lhasa and Tibet. And I don't know, I just kind of, my love for literature led me to women writers, led me to those who were having some pretty big adventures. And I was like, let's go. I think travel is one of those things that a lot of people don't do because it seems scary. And because a lot of, at least in the United States, what's presented of other countries is other and them and this kind of gross notion, I would argue. And I think travel is what, I mean, for me anyway, has made me so empathetic, just truly being able to see how other people do things and under, understanding and creating and, and cultivating that that compassion. So you end up back in Vancouver to kick off your career. Was there a, a vision of what that career was? You know, to be honest, not really. Like for a while, I thought <laughs> I might. It took me a long time to figure it out. I thought I would be a social worker maybe, or it might okay. work for the federal Canadian government because I can speak mm. French and whatever. But it's just the bureaucracy of it. By then, I was like fully in feminist consciousness yeah. to the extent of my Again, what I see now is white feminism, sort of a late second sure. wave type thing that has obviously evolved since, you know, I was mm-hmm. 18, I one would hope. And, uh, but I kicked around, I worked for like Hostelling International, which was perfect for me oh, as, a, well. as a traveler. And I worked at the Vancouver, you know, office and awesome. whatever. It was great. And, yeah. but I didn't see it as a career. And it wasn't until I, like, I was at that point experimenting. I've been sewing my entire life. I was making, I'm very creative. And that was the sort of thing that got shut down when people were like, you got to go to university, you got to go to university. But I'm like, I just feel like making things. Anyways, I finally got back to that. I had a conflict with a manager at my job who was just, it was not awesome. I was fired, even though I was really good at my job. And by this man, I just had a conflict with and whatever. And after that, I'm like, I never want to work for anybody ever again. Like, I just don't. And I don't, I don't want to be defined by what my career is or how many people I have, quote, under me or yes. my title or like, it's just not meaningful to me. And I don't, totally. I don't, and I don't want to fight with people like this and I don't want to engage with them. And so I just simply at that point took what, to that point was a was a hobby, which yeah. was making things. Like honestly, I've made dozens of wedding dresses. And also <laughs> I happened upon this idea of washable menstrual pads and period underwear because I was having was getting infections from using tampons. There's got to be in that point, like I said, I was a feminist. And 
Right. And so that was a really, I'll, I'll circle back to that because it was a very, very important transitional point in my kind of evolution. But yeah, so I set up my first company. I just, I sent in the paperwork to the government of British Columbia and yeah. it cost, you know, 30 bucks and just had to come <laughs> up with a name. And I, I remember getting this thing in the mail that said, yes, you know, you've been approved. You have an official, you know, sole proprietorship in the province right. of British Columbia. And I was like, oh my God, they let me do this. Could you share a little bit around your experiences as a feminist leader in, you know, late 1980s and how that presumably prepared you for this long road of, of entrepreneurship? Yeah, just to back it up a little bit to those university days. Like I said, I was 17 and not really well prepared for the experience. But at that point, I had experienced some gender-based violence as a teenager, and I knew what that looked like. And but I didn't contextualize it. Like I didn't, I thought it was just something bad that happened to happen to me. And I didn't have kind of a bigger picture understanding of the systemic, you know, of patriarchy basically and right. what was going on there. And, and at university, um, I also wanted to be, as I mentioned, my love of reading went into my English 110 survey class first year, first week yeah. and was given the syllabus and I reviewed the syllabus and I realized that there was not one word written by a woman and this is the quote unquote history of English literature, not even a white woman. Mm. And, and the whole year, right? I was like, you, this, no, Ooh. like, I, I won't stand for this. Like, this yeah. is just the most unreasonable. You can't tell me that this is somehow objective or anything like so messed right. up. So anyways, between some rough experiences with like frost week and people drinking way too much and mm. pulling weird shit, really aggressive sexual behavior and that type mm -hmm. of thing. I was radicalized as a feminist. I was like, okay, yeah. I can't, like, this was, this it was a real pushback. It was real, fuck you. So in terms of how that prepared me for entrepreneurship, I kind of started exploring leadership as a yeah. feminist. And so I became very active okay. in the student government as a, I was the gender issues or leader or officer or whatever that was in the sure. student government for two years. I got trained as a sexual assault crisis counselor. I led like take back the night marches and no means no campaigns and film screenings and, you yeah. know, just whatever did all of that stuff. And I was also really influenced at the time. because this is the mid to late 1980s. I had a lot of friends who were activists in the anti-apartheid movement sure. and particularly encouraging Canadian universities to divest from their financial yeah. portfolios from South African held com companies. So that really influenced me a lot as well, where you could just see change happening. Like you could see these right. people saying, hey, this isn't right. And then leaders and administrators actually taking action and saying, totally. okay, okay, we'll get rid of, okay, are, we're going to put our money into something that it doesn't involve institutionalized racism. So that was really kind of part of my imprinting as well. So sure. to me, when it came time to become an entrepreneur, like I knew that I could create change through my own actions. So it just seemed like, even though I have no training in business training and that was the part where I'm like, I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and it's, it's like so many things like you learn how, yep. or in my case, I happened to meet my business partner in 1999, Suzanne Siemens. She's amazing. She's a chartered accountant and, okay. you know, gets uh, financial models and gets right. operations and gets all the mm -hmm. things that for me, a more right brain creative person, maybe not yeah. so much. So it was partly understanding what my limitations were and finding sure. people to support me and work with me. But just this idea of cause and effect, like you don't have to do it the way everybody's done it, you know, exactly. like it's just not what has to happen. And sure. those were some choices that I made kind of early on. At that point, I'm 25 right. years old when I registered my first company. And where do you think that awareness came from? I mean, a lot of folks don't have that ability to step outside themselves and recognize, hey, I'm good at X, Y, and Z. Perhaps I should find someone that is good at the rest. And that notion of building a team to really surround yourself to continue to move forward. I, I don't know. It's a sense of just being able to be honest with myself about things and just go, you know, I, like, it's okay. I don't have to do it all. Like, I think the, right. I think the stereotype of who entrepreneurs are like in the media <laughs> is extremely damaging. It's brutal. Like it's so toxically individualistic. It's so masculine. It's so, 
extractive and winner take all and shark tank and all this stuff. And it's like, yes. that is not the people that those are not the people in my world. Like that is right. not how it works. And unfortunately the practice of entrepreneurship has sort of been co-opted by this Silicon Valley model that of totally. and hustle culture that I just really object to. And, right. but where, but to answer your question, where it comes from, I don't know. Like, it feels like there's just always been inside of thing innate. Like I go to brownies when I was a kid, which is a junior version of Girl Guides yeah. just for American listeners. And I just didn't want to do it the way I didn't like the uniforms. I didn't like the stupid things we had to say. I just like 30, I went to private girls school. I got kicked out of that. And for inciting rebellion in my peers, my daughter's actually really <laughs> proud of that. I'm proud of that. That's amazing. I think that's fantastic. Okay, so this first business, and what was the first business at 25? It was called Everywhere Designs, and that was W-A-R-E on the end. And that um, products that were known as Lutz, uh, as well as Period Underwear that I was making. And just to give you a bit of backstory on that, um, as I mentioned earlier, I was having this, these per- persistent infections that seemed to arrive at the onset or within yeah. 24 hours of the onset of my period. I just come off using hormonal birth control for the past mm. 10 years. Okay. So yeah, like 15 to 25, I was kind of not really, I mean, when we take hormonal birth control, we're not actually experiencing our full cycles, which is sort of right. the point. And so coming off that, like I was starting to have this really amazing period of self-discovery around my menstrual sure. cycle and we're like feeling it all right like totally. this is not just about like oh hey you know i'm bleeding let's clean this up it was like this is my luteal cycle this is you know i'm am i ovulating what you know what's my sure. what's going on you know what's happening right. with the moon what's happening at the, mm. you know i really developed a sense of deep almost spiritual connection yeah. with larger cyclical yeah forces like the yeah. tides and you know even just our monthly energetic kind of yeah circadian rhythm and um and became very fascinated by that and just really recognized there was a lot of power in that and that it was so maligned by the culture that we've all been fed around menstruation and now it's just this gross mess to be cleaned up and not don't talk about it blah 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 right interestingly so I was confronted with this like very real like problem I'm 25 and I'm having my right. period in this huge way and I, I need to manage this and the only options are products that are, you know, apparently harmful to my health. And, but also being a deeply creative person, the idea of making products to, to deal with that, um, was, was pretty straightforward. Like, let's go. And so I started doing that. And what was amazing is that I think it's hard to describe now or explain in the context when, when reusable menstrual products are, everybody knows what a menstrual cup is and has probably heard a period underwear and, you know, whatever, like kind of get this idea that, you know, you, you're going to actually deal with this yourself as opposed Mm -hmm. to just using something and throwing it away. Well, in in the early 1990s, I cannot tell you how transgressive it was to do that. I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was, I mean, okay, we weren't in the middle ages or something, but I mean, still like socially, you know, nine out of 10 like people, it. yeah, I would tell what I was doing and I would, I was excited about it. They'd just be like, I really know that's too much, you know, like sure. if all the things that really must be disposable, like menstrual yeah. products should be, because it's just not disgusting. So when I first, I still remember the first time of washing my pads and just kind of literally like the touching it and the water and the blood and then whatever, and all the things that really you're not supposed to do. Like that, you know, the entire experience of using a disposable menstrual product is antithetical to that. It's still, it's to save you from having to, you know, what does it smell like? What is it, you know, what color is it? What, yeah, la, la, la. Anyways, when I did that, I was like, oh, like, this is so fascinating. Like I've never experienced my body in this way like it was breathtakingly gentle. It was like, oh my God, I'm just this, this animal hmm. whose body is doing exactly what it is supposed to be right. doing and making this perfectly innocent mess hmm. that is vilified and maligned and treated like it's toxic waste by our culture. And, but I saw the truth of all of that in the moment. And I was like, sure. oh my God, like, I just need to take care of myself. And this is the best way I can think of to do this. That, I mean, that's definitely, that's, you know, the antithesis of what we've been taught. And I don't know if it's any different in Canadian 
schools, but for me, it was, you know, I don't even remember what sort of education we got around it in school. All I remember is going to some sort of class with my mom and her friend and her friend's daughter. And, you know, they threw some tampons at us and some pads and they said, you know, they attempted to make it a more comforting and, you know, hold space, but it's still, it wasn't helpful. It wasn't, it wasn't anything that actually, you know, made you understand. And to your point, like there's so much more to it that has been what I feel like hidden from us in almost like, a, and to your point, a malicious way. It's like if we truly were able to tap into this, especially as women, especially collectively, how powerful could that be? And what could we, what change could we enact in that way? Exactly. And that, that, that is why I decided to commercialize the products. Because it's like, if I feel this way, what would happen if everybody who menstruated stopped, like hated their bodies less? You know, let's, let's see, because this is like part of what you just described is, is part of a learned kind of attitude Mm -hmm. towards, like it's internalized misogyny and body hatred and all those things and judgment, blah, blah, blah. And if we can intervene in this very, you know, primal way and have this impact like it's it's so far beyond a practical solving of a problem like this is a whole it's an internal revolution is what it is and so recognizing that opportunity that's what led me with my non-business background and whatever it was like i need more people you know if it's available to them if whatever their experience of this might be like mine then i want that to happen yeah absolutely absolutely and so what did you go on to form another business after that or was it the same same company so I kind of struggled on by myself. So, th- so this all started in 1993 when I started yeah. developing products. That was when I registered the first business. And this is pre-internet as well. So it was like, I was literally, I had my trunk full of pads and underwear that I'd made. I'd go to these right. sort of women's things and groups and circles and what have you. Totally. And I'd try to sell them to health food stores yeah. with some success. And in fact, I had my own little store for like three years where I sold clothing that I made and so on. And yeah, it was fun. And fortunately in 1999, I met my business partner, Suzanne Siemens at a community leadership course. And we just became friends like right out of the gate. And, and she was in a very senior, hardcore corporate kind of environment that was really not feeding her soul in any way. And yeah, so we've been working together ever since. And at that point, yeah. So in 2000, we formed a new, like properly incorporated company with shareholders and, you know, all that kind of really far more legal, legally Mm. complex structure. Definitely. Oh, that's so cool. And so then what happens post that? I mean, at that point, you're not going door to door to health food stores. We had a very, or I had a very early website put up in like 1998 or something. Okay. And so there was little dribs and drabs and, and whatever, but we really decided to take that opportunity pretty seriously of the Mm. e-commerce. We had a few like bumps in the road and whatever, and got very involved with menstrual equity in the global South and a lot of projects there. And that was a huge focus for us for many, 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 many years. And um, it's less so now because there's so much local activity in the menstrual health and equity scene. Like, you know, what do you, you don't need products to be sent from Canada. Like, you know, Anyways, but we've been part of a lot of that. I mean, you could say that again. I would argue a few folks might need to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it's in my book. Um, and yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So really, and also then in the mid sort of 2010 to 2015, the sure. issue of menstrual equity started to become increasingly mm-hmm. visible in Canada and the United States as just a human rights issue. And that has been an increasing focus for us because Mm -hmm. reusable products have a really important role to play in sustainable menstrual equity Mm -hmm. and not just, you know, okay, here are some free tampons in a bathroom. Right. You know, what what happens three hours later? Like we, if we actually want to solve period poverty, then, you know, we need more solutions than that. So that's kind of been the primary focus of my work for the last few years is working with institutions like um, post-secondary to provide their students with free, reasonable menstrual products. Totally. man. And is that to you more of the creative leadership work that you're doing? 
Yeah. And, and I mean, in addition to that, I should add, so for folks who are new to my work, I have a nonprofit venture called Nestworks where we're going to be opening up a family-friendly co-working space in Vancouver. And I've also oh. written a book and I also oh ran um, an event series for girls from 2014 to until COVID started. So 2020. So I'll formerly known as Lunapads, the company, the natural menstrual product company. I still work there almost full-time, but I, I have a variety of other projects going on. A few yeah. other things. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, just in context, like this is all unfolded over 30 years. Obviously, throughout all the work that you've done, you're a very empathetic person. Where do you think that sense of empathy comes from and being able to truly put yourself in someone else's shoes to continue to solve more and more and more problems. Well, you're very sweet to say that, but I'm, I'm not going to take credit for that. So this idea for Nestworks, which is a Nestworks.space for folks who are interested. When my daughter was born in 2005, uh, my business partner had had a baby in 2003. Okay. Uh, Gigi came to 2005. And then she had another, Suzanne had another baby in 2007. And Anyways, so we're having kids and in at least, I know, you know, Canada is not a perfect place. We do not have universal childcare. Like there was very little childcare to be had. And also we weren't eligible as business owners for any kind of maternity leave benefits. And also we just needed to keep working. Like there were maybe five people in the company at the time. Like it was just like, you know, so we brought our kids to work. Yeah, And so we would bring them to the office and it worked out great. Like it was, it really, again, it showed me, there was this moment of going, oh my God, there's this artificial construct that has us, that work needs to be over here. And then my life needs to be over here, super far away from each other. And then, and then I've got to like Mm -hmm. figure out how to balance them. And every single event I go to, um, there's going to be some woman talking about balance and whatever. It's like, we only need to balance things that are separate. If we integrate them, then they're not like, it's like, like this was done until the industrial revolution, people worked from home and had children and it was just, it was integrated. So it's, it really came from that experience for children to be raised around, like they're still connected to their parents. Like there isn't this, you know, terrible wall between don't talk to me, I'm working, you know? And I think that. Yeah. A lot of children, I think their idea of work is something that steals their parents from them for eight or 10 hours a day. And so I really wanted to, yeah, create a space that was more integrated. So here I'm actually in it right now and we're going to be doing a month long pop-up to launch it in April. Congratulations. To your point about integrating. I think that that's something I would love, love to see more of. And that's something, honestly, I get shit on a lot for, which I've learned over time and separated myself from <laughs> from those people in those situations. But that's, for me, it's always, I've always been at this weird intersection of art and business. I was an art school dropout. I ended up at this business school. I studied anthropology. I didn't quite know where, how all these pieces fit together. I was in the music industry or still, I'm still adjacent to the music industry now. And that was the one place where you could have some weird creative people, but also have some business folks and you were able to use creativity in, in a more of a more of an enterprise, I guess, rather than when I was at art school. And it was like, there's there was kids in my classes who could run circles around me when it came to all of their artwork, but there was no plan for how to pay rent. And so, and then since then, it's just been this weird integration of like every single person that I've met, whether it's for a business that I've started or a consulting project that I've worked on or someone that I've interviewed on the show or anything like that. It's like, oh, great. Well, let's let's continue to bring them all together. And like what cool things can happen? The more interesting and, and smart and brilliant people you get in a room, where is that open-mindedness and why do we keep shutting the door on each other? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, we live in a culture that of binaries where it's got to be one person's right, or there's the right way to do something or whatever. And then in the meantime, we're like, we need to innovate. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. And um, why don't we talk to, you know, the creative people or find the people who are underrepresented and marginalized and ask them what they think. And so out of all of these different ventures that you've had so far, is there a specific 
moment where rubber really hit the road for you? That was tough that you had to overcome? Well, I would say it's overcoming a, a, a deep moment of self-doubt. I mean, even to, even to this day, I still have a story that I'm not a real business person mm. or that I've kind of, I don't know, sold out on being a social change activist because I'm a quote capitalist, you know, and whatever, like there are these weird stories that I think I'm going to be unlearning my whole life, but I'm, I'm just so committed to the visions that I feel gifted with and mm. just the, and the, the sense of possibility, like I've seen right. it in real life. Like it, I've seen these things happen. And I think we're living in a time of remarkable opportunity and crisis um, mm. at the same time. So, you know, so things need to change for sure. Like it's so clear that, you know, the systems and this extractive, you know, system of capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy, like all these things are failing. They're just so, you know, crash and burn. And so what, what is going to come to replace those things? And, and what do we need to, you know, to do? We've got to invent things, you know, and, and some of those will quote unquote fail or, you know, whatever. And (laughs) so for me, it's, it's just been the willingness. I'm, I've just always been that kind of person who is willing to jump into the lake first or to ask the hard question or to, you know, go, oh, there's an elephant in this room let's go look at it, (laughs) you know, or something like that. I don't know. It's just, it's just my personality. Sure. And when you're having those moments of self-doubt or those moments of you recognize, or you have the ability to recognize that you're telling yourself a story that may not be true. Is there any cognitive process that you have that you're able to say, Hey, self, (laughs) let's backtrack. And how do you get realigned in that way? I love that question. I'm big on asking for help. And so I just, again, that, you know, we were talking earlier about this, you know, toxic individualism and I've got to do this all by myself and I should know everything and, you know, no, no, no. And it's like, ask for help. You know, I talk to my mom, I talk to my friends, I talk to my dad, I talk to like my business partner and just to be really transparent about it. Like, oh, I'm having a little, I'm kind of feeling a bit shaky right now. I'm feeling kind of lost or scared or whatever. And again, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be tough and strong and, you know, all this BS. And, and so I just find, and, and also other people like are, when I talk to other entrepreneurs about it, like they have it too. Right. Like on some level, every, I think to exist as human beings and walk out the door every day, like there are challenges and there are, you know, voices inside our head that are going to tell us whatever the story is to try and slow us down, or I don't know where those things come from, childhood, whatever culture, but I'm big on asking for help and not judging myself. Like it's one thing to be going, okay, I'm feeling unsteady or I'm feeling some self-doubt. And then to on top of it go, you're such a jerk for feeling that way. It's like, okay, get rid of the second voice for sure. (laughs) And attend to the first one. Because I mean, probably what you are trying to do is something you haven't done before. Maybe you don't know how and whatever, like just remember the things like we've all had those moments in life where, you know, maybe we were learning how to ride a bicycle or maybe we were learning how to talk or maybe we were learning how to, you know, anything right in life and kind of draw on that, like, and just be gentle with yourself. Like we are so not gentle with ourselves as human beings. It's like, there's this, again, toxic perfectionism. You've got to be this big, strong, perfect leader and know everything and never break down and never be scared and whatever. And I, I'm just like, throw that all out. You believe that social entrepreneurship and business can be a vehicle for change. How have you gone about figuring out and navigating to your point this world that we live in, which is so hyper capitalistic, especially in this, I mean, not, not, I was going to say around here, but (laughs) globally, this (laughs) hyper capitalistic world that we live in. And this is, you know, honestly a pretty selfish question because I've been attempting to toe this line for my whole career as well. And how might we, as we're envisioning a brighter future for everyone, I would hope. (laughs) How might we 
figure out how to how to do it better? How how might we burn it all down and start over? Like, what does that look like? I would start with throwing out perfectionism, throwing out the idea that there's a perfect solution out there and that you've just got to figure that out, whatever. This, the only thing you're going to be able to achieve because we're working within, you know, we're imperfect human beings working within an imperfect system (laughs) that is in the process of burning down. And so, you know, like, you know, there there are going to be a few, you know, burnt pancakes that we throw away in the mix. But to me, the best sort of practices out there are embodied by B Corps. And so if folks aren't familiar with a B Corp, you know, you go to a, a grocery store or something and you'll see perhaps on packaging, like it's a little capital B with a circle around it. And what that means is that company has subjected itself to an extremely rigorous assessment, like full spectrum assessment of all of its social and environmental practices and impacts. And it's no small undertaking uh, to be certified as a B Corp. And so in the case of Isle, formerly known as Lunapads, we've been certified as B Corp since 2010. Wow. Uh, Or sorry, 2013. Excuse me. We're in our first decade, or I suppose now our second decade of being a B Corp, which is amazing. And so I think that's kind of a, thank you. And yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a walk (laughs) the talk thing that requires some resources and requires some commitment. It's, it's not easy to do, but for consumers and just for people really seeking to understand and also be part of a, a community, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way we're going to do this. Like one person or one company right. is not going to be able to do this individually, but as a community and as a collective where we're sharing best practices, we're sharing our learnings and so on, then it becomes more possible. But I'm big, even if you're not like a B Corp's kind of a, you know, a really big thing to take on. But in my book, I discuss kind of really checking your assumptions about what having good intentions means in terms of outcome or impact. Like, I think sometimes we think because we have a really amazing vision for impact that we will just sort of achieve that vision and that will occur. And, and I think that we need to be actually quite rigorous in terms of measuring our impact wherever it's possible really being super mindful, like, you know, leaders who are white, for example, need to really Mm -hmm. check how their social privilege might be imbuing their leadership or whatever their outcomes of what they're doing. There needs to be, and also greenwashing is a huge thing that you can fall into. It's like, you know, we're seeing this in the reusable menstrual product space. It's like, you know, just because a product is reusable doesn't necessarily make it sustainable Mm -hmm. or even safe to use. Like you, you know, you've got to be looking at more Like you've got to be looking at, you know, how, what's your supply chain and what are your, you know, labor practices and what are your sustainability metrics? And like, it's not an easy thing to do. It is not. And, but with, if you're willing to bring rigor to it, because it matters to you, then do it. Like, I, I think it's the future, but it's, it's not, it's not an easy thing. It's challenging. So I guess that's what, and it's also evolving and there's all kinds of, and, you know, look at what Yvonne Chouinard did last year with um, Patagonia. He sure did. did. And so it's like, like, let's look to those examples of somebody really doing something radical. Like how much money do you think he could have got from selling his company to Nike or something like, you know, and, and he didn't. And that wasn't like that type of leadership. And that type of being super creative, like around, like to speak to that, you know, idea of the stereotypical entrepreneurial activity is to raise tons of money, scale your business as quickly as possible, and then sell it to the highest bidder. And then you win, right? (laughs) Yvonne Chouinard has thrown that completely out on its ass of going, you know, I grew this business because I wanted people to experience the outdoors Yes. And whatever grew it to the, you know, for as long as it took over, you know, decades, decades and yes. now have decided to create new structures, new structures so that that money can be, you know, channeled into supporting environmental charities, you know, exactly. in perpetuity. And it's like, that was amazing. Agreed. And the thing that kills me as well, to your point about this business model that we've been operating off of, especially in the startup space and this idea of going out and raising venture capital. And then you go and you you move fast and you break things and you sell things. It is wild to me, especially having been in the startup realm for the last decade. It is crazy to me that I've worked for, for and with 
many, many startups. And it is wild to me. I can't think of any of them that are making money. And everyone thinks that it's so, it's this, you know, idealized thing. And it's just, it's wild. The amount of money that gets dumped into wild ideas, especially wild ideas by cis white boys, not even men. These are like maybe 20 something year olds. And it is truly mind blowing to me. So that's another reason why I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. And I I love um, how you singled out that expression, move fast and break things, because that's one of my <laughs> least favorite kind of hallmark. I had to. Expressions of the hustle culture. And I've actually reframed it as move gracefully and nurture things. Beautiful. I'll be sure to link to that for anyone who is interested in reading The Greater Good that came out in, in 2021, like I mentioned in the in the intro, but we'll put that in the show notes so you can, can snag a copy. One other thing that I definitely wanted to touch on with you is recently your decision to become sober and how that has impacted your abilities to navigate gracefully through the world. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I decided to, I suppose I started to really kind of reckon with my drinking about five years ago, like just really kind of pay attention to it. Go, do I, why am I just habitually having a glass of wine, you know, Mm. when I get home or I'm making dinner, like, you know, it sort of had progressed from something that I did at parties or, you know, that type of thing to becoming a daily, like wine o'clock, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it just started bothering me and started affecting my sleep. And, and I started recognizing it was almost like there was a voice inside my head kind of reminding me to drink or telling me to drink or mm. sort of justifying that I have another glass of wine or whatever. Sure. And yeah, so I started looking at it, even though it didn't present like I really had to kind of unpack the way alcoholism so-called is constructed in our society right. and who an alcoholic is and what that even means. And because uh, I was like, am I an alcoholic? I don't sure. feel like any alcoholic I've ever constructed in my mind right? because I'm this nice white lady, you know, drinking her white wine with her nice dinner every <laughs> night or whatever. And so I started experimenting and doing dry January and mm. um, bits and pieces and realizing that it was kind of a tussle. Like mm. dry January, I could do it, but it it almost became like a get out of jail free card. It was like, mm. well, I'm not an alcoholic. I mean, I did dry January, for goodness sake. Right. Like, sure. You know, if I really had a problem, I wouldn't be able to do that. And then I did in 2020, I did a hundred day challenge. And I felt amazing. Like this was the other thing is it really gave me a taste of like what actual sobriety felt like in my body. Mm. And as a woman in my mid fifties, you know, menopausal sleep's a challenge, hormones are a challenge, like all these things, life is a challenge. And I, I was like, oh my God, I feel amazing. Like I feel so good. It's kind of crazy. And, but even after a hundred days, I, I went back to drinking. Mm-hmm. And even though I, and, and at that point I was like, oh yeah, something's really got you here. <laughs> that is not awesome. And yeah. so it took me another year, but I finally quit on, on April 14th, 2021. And so I'm coming up on two, two years of sobriety and, okay. but it's just been an incredible journey for me and, and to sort of bring it like, I just feel, I feel like a different person in so many ways. And it totally. just feels, I feel more consistent and more awake. And definitely it's really, I think affected my leadership and creativity. Like I don't feel tired anymore. And I, sure. I don't know. I just feel more present. Yeah. I think a lot of, and we've had a handful of guests on the show that are sober as well. And I think what's interesting is that that fine line of, to your point, you know, it can become habitual, but it's also, I think it becomes a risky thing to do when it's an escape. And I think there's a difference. I know, you know, there's a lot, especially now out there more public around different psychedelics and cannabis use. And we've interviewed a handful of folks in, in both, both uh, industries. And I think that Again, there's that fine line of like, are you doing this to escape the universe in which you exist right now? Or are you using this as a tool to perhaps look at something differently? And that intent, I think, does matter. But that's amazing that you've been able to keep it going. 
Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I thought I'm really glad that you raised it and that we're talking about it because I think it's really consistent with the theme of your podcast because it is so, you know, just drinking is such a status quo thing. Yeah. You know, the majority of adults, <laughs> like, I don't know, 70, 80% of adults in Canada and the United States drink and yeah. it's not really seen for what it is. Like it's, it's so embedded in our culture. Our culture is alcogenic, meaning that right. um, it favors the consumption of alcohol and it's not widely known that it causes cancer, that it's a level one carcinogen in Canada. Um, mm. There was just a new recommendations for low risk drinking guidelines that said that adults shouldn't have more than two drinks per week in order to know like that they're within the quote of safe levels wow. of consumption and That's which wild. is a really big deal. And yeah, it's far more, anyways, it's changing. The culture around alcohol is changing. And I'm, I'm really, really, really glad to see that happening. So to bring it back a little bit to your business experience, entrepreneurship experience, leadership experience, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs and or social activists who are really wanting to make a positive impact on the world and how perhaps how they could create their own path and make a difference both in their communities and beyond. So that is exactly who I wrote my book for. So it kind of takes you through like, yeah, for sure, the step, you know, step by step, how do you make a plan? But even before you get to that, and because it can be, that stuff can be really overwhelming. And, you know, if you think that you have to do all that in order to start something, I'd like to blow that up right now by mm -hmm. offering my number one piece of advice to people. And that is just to tell someone about mm. what's on your mind. In fact, you don't even need to tell another person, but, but write it down. Do, do something that expresses, make a piece of art, sing a song. I don't, whatever it is, yes. but like externalize your ideas in sure. some way. And yes. it has so much power. You have no idea when you hold this thing inside you and are going, well, I don't think this is good enough, or I don't really know what I'm doing, or right. it, uh, it's, it's not scalable or blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> it's not ever going to happen. Right. Nothing will happen. Nobody's going to come up to you and go, oh my God, that's so fantastic because you haven't told anybody what the thing is. <laughs> and, and it's almost like letting a genie out of a bottle. Like when right. that comes out of you, and especially when someone else witnesses you or, you know, gives you feedback or, you know, expresses excitement or whatever, it like literally takes on an energy. It takes on life. Totally. Oh, and so never underestimate that. Never, ever. And it costs nothing. Right. You don't need to do anything. You don't like do that before you read my book. Do that before, like <laughs> all the other things will come from that. And right. also you're going to keep doing it. You're going to do it a million times. Mm. You're going to tell what is this product? What is this service? What is your vision? Whatever. Like you're going to have to, this, it will never, ever stop. And, uh, and so the more comfortable you are and the more you can kind of be with that mm. and, and watch it evolve and, watch, see how people respond to it and so on. It's, it's the most powerful thing you can do. So important. And then the final question that we do ask every guest, which may have a bit of overlap with what you just shared, but we do ask every guest, what is the worst and the best piece of advice that you've ever received? It's not really advice per se. It's very common business wisdom that you need to come up with something called a big, hairy, audacious goal or BHAG. And that was an expression coined by a very famous business writer in a book called Get to Great and Jim Collins. Anyways, it's super, super, very common. What's your BHAG? Uh, and I have always found that similar to the move fast and break things that you talked about earlier. It's like, why does it have to be, why does it have to be big? What, what is this? Why? How? Thank what? you. Like this it just Thank has you always that. felt so almost oppressive. Yes. And to me, and, and, and it's, it's like, but I just, I just, there's this one thing that is, you know, is shining a light in my heart and it's not big and it's not hairy and it's not audacious, but it matters to me. And I, so having to really unpack this bigger is better 
idea and even the idea of scale that is so fetishized in the entrepreneurial world that is sort mm. of built into this BHAG premise. Um, I have personally reframed it as a beautiful, healthy, achievable goal mm. uh, because yes. it's like, okay, I think I can do this thing today. And, right. and this makes me happy and excited. It's like, you know, by all means have a big vision. Like of course. if that's what feels true and good and real and, and fabulous to you, great. But the idea of, of this BHAG thing on those terms as kind of a be, be all and end all, or if you're not thinking big enough or you're not, you know, whatever, <laughs> it, it's like these projections aren't aggressive enough. And it's like, I don't, you're too aggressive. Like stop, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're just generally more accessible, saner ways of doing that and thinking about the things that matter to us that are, are amazing. And mm. so, yeah, that, that for me has been the least useful piece of business advice that I've ever had totally. and flipping it over is kind of the opposite and um, asking questions. And these are things I've learned from people like Adrian Marie Brown. And if people sure. um, oh. read her book called emergent yes. strategy and, and yes. really looking, okay. to natural systems of growth uh, for inspiration and totally. asking questions like what, what, what wants to happen? What is already happening? What is, you know, what does my intuition say? Um, those types of questions, like just bring curiosity as opposed to, I am going to make this thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, what, what's, <laughs> I don't know. It's just a different orientation. And I am a big fan of biomimicry and regenerative um, systems of growth. I'm a huge fan of the work of uh, forest ecologist, Dr. Suzanne Samard and her book, Finding the Mother Tree, which I highly mm. recommend. It's, um, it's not a business book, but as a business person who likes to think in the way, like, I think these are the kinds of questions. It's like, what is an entrepreneur doing paying attention to a forest ecologist to learn about how to structure the organizations mm. that she's building? Like, that is exactly what I'm doing. Like, yes. oh my God, there are all That's these root systems and <laughs> mitochondrial networks and whatever, and they're feeding each other and they're not, the trees in the forest aren't in competition with one another. They're, yes. you know, all these things. Oh. It's like, this is, these are the ideas I think that we need to be drawing on as we contemplate the future. <sighs> Thank you so much for sharing all of this. This was truly amazing. <laughs> I loved it. I loved your questions. And <sighs> yeah, no, this has been a really, really fun conversation. Thank you for listening to The Cost of the Status Quo and learning the wisdom, stories, and ideas that will have you feeling inspired and ready to take on the world. If you've enjoyed this, please remember to share, rate, and review. It means the world to me and the team putting it all together. If you're looking for more information, you can find us at costofthestatusquo.com or on Instagram at costofthestatusquo. If you've got any questions or curiosity about me, you can find me at lindsaylearner.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-L-E-R-N-E-R.com or on Instagram at lindsaylearner. Thanks again for listening. Hope you have an awesome day.